0: Hi, this is JR from Design Museum Everywhere. I'm the exhibitions manager and editor for our We Design book that is dropping this year. We Design has taken on several different forms. You may have seen the in-person free exhibitions in schools and public buildings or our online virtual exhibition. Now, with your support, we're producing a book. It will feature 41 design stories of designers who refuse the confines of white supremacy and are creating innovative spaces, products, systems, and strategies at the forefront of contemporary design. We believe design can change the world. If you believe in the transformative power of design, we ask you to join us in lifting up the powerful and innovative voices of BIPOC, female, and gender expansive designers, and back this project to bring this new book to life. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org for more details and keep an eye out for the Design book coming soon.
1: Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and together we interview someone about their work in design. Because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about something fundamental, I feel like, to design. Talking about the impact of typography on designing and defining the voice of a brand. Joining me today is Blake Goodwin, the founder and president of Proportion Design. And later on in the show, we'll chat with Matteo Bologna, founder and principal of MUCA Design. Together, we will learn from both of them how we incorporate typography in brands, in pretty much everything. Typography is ubiquitous. Before we dive in, just a reminder for our listeners, please jump onto our podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, everywhere you listen and leave a review and a rating. It really helps us reach more people so we can chat about design with even more people. Help us grow this community. So give this episode a quick pause, add your review, and then start it up again. Thanks so much, and let's get back to the show. And with that, on to this week's topic. Good design is good business. You all know I think that. In the world of design, typography has the power to transform the voice of a brand visually. I'm so excited to chat with our guest co-host, my friend, Blake Goodwin to uncover how his team integrates type into brand designs. After getting his BFA in graphic design at Boston University, Blake became the director of operations at Artaic, a company that makes very cool tile mosaics using robots. In college, a professor once told Blake that he had a good sense of proportion, which is why he went on to name his agency, Proportion Design. Proportion is a Boston-based boutique agency that has worked across all areas of the built environment, consumer products, and a broad range of corporate services. Their work spans many sectors, including hospitality, residential, retail, commercial, food, and beverage. Blake's designs go beyond the expected in a way that is timely yet timeless. Blake, welcome to the show.
0: Hello, Sam. Thanks for having me.
1: To start, tell us more about proportion design. You know, I mentioned you have this innate sense of proportion based on your professor. So, can you tell us what the name means, where it came from, and how proportions inform the work you do?
0: Well, I think one of the best comments ever with regard to the name of our firm was from you years ago when you said, "How did you get that URL <laughs> proportion right. design?" How does it still exist? <laughs> I was like, I guess we're extremely lucky and I think we definitely are in that regard. You know, it really when when my professor said that way back when in a typography class, it was just one of those things that just clicked, it stuck, it never left because I think you know what better kind of a rallying term is there kind of in in design because unlike art design has a lot of considerations and items that you have to work within and work with and so figuring out what all of those are how pieces all fit together is um you know very indicative of the design process and design in in general and you know, when he said that, it felt like that was a great <laughs> moment that like encapsulated. I'm like, all right, we're going to run with this. You have to at that point. Yeah.
1: I uh, I always think like back when I was even an intern, I interned at Kodak designing cameras, non-digital cameras. Whew. But anyway, I learned pretty quickly that like, okay, I don't want to... The elements of design, I want to say are easy, but it's how those elements connect and interact with each other. And that comes down to the proportions between them, right? Proportion is a comparison
0: right exactly exactly you know the a dash of this and a, a dose of that and we use it as a branding agency obviously kind of a high level with strategy and all of the considerations in terms of um kind of a market positioning and target audience sort of um, considerations and really putting all of those things into proportion but then obviously then when we roll into things like identity design naming and then Every type of pretty much graphic design that you can think of, obviously, uh, the the tactical proportions of, of visual design then really start to become very important. Has to be relevant. Has to look good. Has to create the right type of connection and desire. So again, all these things boil right back up into that mindset.
1: Yeah, they all have to be in, in balance. Let's get into type. I mean, even that word, right? Like designers, you and I were like, oh, type, typography fonts let's talk to the people who maybe aren't dealing with typography every day and just it's a simple question to ask but what is
0: type in a design context well type is hard (laughs) (laughs) first and foremost i agree but um you know typography and typographic systems you know all of the the fonts and sizing and spacing and character interplay between typography and how it plays out for a, a brand or an identity in packaging or digital experiences or environmental experiences, you know, this is all typography. And the culmination of our brand strategy is, is creative direction. So really a, a kind of a high level, but somewhat specific mood board that really sets the course for uh, the, all of the design that's forthcoming in there. We start to really look at imagery, color and kind of type broad stylings, serif, sans serif, you know, will there be textures applied to type? How does the type interact with images, stuff like that? And then, you know, that starts to inform when the identity is fully developed, really how typography starts to interact with other things like graphics on all of the collateral and marketing implementations I just mentioned. Another big component to that is choosing the right types of type, <laughs> for a lack of a better term, um, that fit with a, a brand strategy and a brand identity. Um, you know, I think some of the particulars that, that can start to paint that picture perhaps easily for somebody that's not really familiar with type is a serif font that you might picture on an old timey Bible or something. Or are you going to use that for the, the latest app, social media app or something is... And that's really where the core of type consideration lies. Yeah,
1: I love that. And I know I've had a chance to sit in some of the restaurants with you that uh, you and the team have designed a lot of amazing type forward pieces. And so and I know Mateo's done a lot in hospitality and restaurants, too. So maybe we could use that kind of space as an example of like a restaurant, like in your process, how do you get to that point of like this font or this type type? Or this topography treatment is like the right feel for this hospitality brand it just feels so like esoteric and like there's like no right answer right but how do you sort of get to what feels right
0: yeah and it kind of depends again project to project in our creative direction and strategy and in our partner who we're working with um kind of what their appetite is for the brand's direction and i know when you speak about some of the restaurants is a a good thing to lay out here is the potential difference between restaurants. So you look at some of the really kind of high end crazier ones that we've done, the typography systems there, we'll take a Cuban restaurant, for example, that we did, you know, we had our base kind of wordmark type that a lot of the things that this ownership group does is really um, kind of urban and gritty, right, mixed in with a really high class luxury and opulence. So we usually do. You know, a fair amount of kind of like cursive handwritten stuff with them um, and that was kind of how the primary word mark played out and then we dovetailed that into a concept of fidel castro's handwriting and took another stab at a different kind of sort of cursive text for the the menu systems um, and some of the promotional collateral as kind of a header type and then some of your more text heavy areas like a menu all of the items and prices and stuff we brought that back into a, a serif font, you know, really uh, high contrast font that you know, kind of evokes luxury, I think, for for quite some time now. So that one was really wide ranging and fit really the, the very expansive concept overall. Others are a lot more tight in which there might only be one sans serif typeface, for example, for, you know, like a sports bar or sports restaurant, Hurricanes comes to mind in which that was just a variation on the same typeface across a couple of different weights to get the hierarchy of information figured out. So from the word mark down to the headers um, and into the body text for collateral and and promotional items. So really, it depends on that, that creative strategy. Kind of to what degree are we really getting wild or are we maintaining a really tight scope in terms of typography?
1: Yeah, I love that. Is there a non-hospitality type heavy project that you have done recently you want to talk about?
0: So this is an architecture firm, Rohde Architects, local here to Boston, um, in which their wordmark and their icon became a really heavily modified sans-serif typeface in which um, it had incorporated expansions in the letters in various sort of arrangements to come up with. So you've got the R-O-D-E, wordmark, um, just read uh, as usual, but then also RO stacked over the DE was the icon. And that one, how that played out across some of the concepts that we showed, how this could be relevant and, and implemented were really cool. It was, you know, you can create pattern, you can create uh, movable type on digital instances um, and like like movable patterns with that that stretching and contracting typeface. There's a, a little bit of that going on out there these days, but I was really happy with the way it fit in with their brand strategy. We we coupled it with kind of this secondary lightning bolt icon um, that was unearthed from some internal stuff that they had done over the years with apparel and everything. And it's kind of this thing that they all rallied around. And the two things worked great together and really exemplified this indie rocker creative strategy that we had for them because if, if you look at the architectural industry kind of at large, there's like any industry you you see trends and, and certain aesthetics that play out. And it was kind of not totally, you know, going against the grain, but really trying to define like, where are we relevant and how, and it's really like this, the concept was this indie rocker who's obviously on stage as a star, but is approachable in a coffee shop. (laughs) And the way that we just had that, that really kind of it's, it's a sans serif type, so it fits within the industry, but it was playful um, and really, again, exemplified everything that I just said. I think to this day, probably a, a studio favorite here. Um, there's been a, there's been a few contenders, but um, that's up there for a while now.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Very cool. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um uh, yeah. really appreciate it. Listeners, to see more of Blake and the team's work, visit. There's the URL, proportiondesign.com. And Blake, stick around and we'll dig even more into type with Matteo Bologna in the conversation after a quick break.
0: If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's the museum that comes to you wherever you are.
1: That's right, Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone.
0: Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have.
1: Membership starts at just $3 a month. And you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep.
2: Just go to
0: designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today. And your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world.
1: That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. And we're back. And we're joined by our special guest, Matteo Bologna. Matteo is the principal creative director and founder of MUCA Design, an award-winning New York-based branding firm that transforms businesses through uncommon creative solutions. In 1994, Matteo moved to New York where he was the senior designer at Ralph Applebaum Associates by day and a freelance designer working on designing iconic New York City hubs like Balthazar's and Pravada by night. In 1999, he founded MUCA. An award-winning firm where he has solved numerous design challenges for companies like Sephora, the NFL, Whole Foods, WeWork, Adobe, and Target, just to name a few. Matteo is also the president emeritus of the Type Directors Club and former board member of AIGA New York. Matteo's smart branding makes hearts beat faster. Matteo,
2: welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. I really, I'm really happy to be here. A little bit nervous, you know, when you are on this. Podcasts always feel weird. It feels that you always have to be intelligent, <laughs> which is uh, sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not, but I'll try to make sure that uh, your listeners are going to have their money worth.
1: I love it. You know, it's a free podcast. So already they've already got their money's worth. It's, yeah, it's, it's easy. Great. I love it. Let's dive in. What makes you passionate about typography? Like what makes it exciting for you?
2: I think it has to do with a little bit of my ADD. Mm. (laughs) The fact that I can sit for hours and hours and hours repeating the same thing over and over again is like a very safe container. It's the safest uh, container that I could be in. Whenever I open a type design software, I'm just happy. And also, of course, I love type. I, I think it's an amazing way to communicate ideas and uh, messages very subtly. You are uh, creating something that the recipient cannot really interpret, but feels. So there's all this, this idea that, you know, based on the more you see a certain, certain style of typefaces, maybe nobody knows what that typeface is. But if you see, I don't know, typefaces, like A with a really lower crossbar, uppercase A, or a E with a lower crossbar, sans serif, people will probably think it has to do with, uh, art, with art Deco or something in the past. So creating all this uh, uh, semantic association with the shapes of the letter and something that they communicate that goes beyond the word, I find it extremely fascinating
1: yeah you really got me thinking about i mean text for the most part we can all read but what you're doing with design is imbuing that text with
2: feeling right absolutely and the fact that there's type everywhere i mean it's really everywhere yeah yeah and uh, it's ridiculous actually how it doesn't get acknowledged Mm -hmm. there's definitely more type than architecture Absolutely, <laughs> and you cannot go to a, from a building to another without some sign that tells you go there or go this way without type. Yeah, I mean maybe you can do it with icons, and of course now there's a lot of icon designers who are using uh, type design software to create these big icon sets. So is uh, icon design type, and then if you go back, back, back in the past before emojis you have hieroglyphics and those are icons so the history keeps repeating
1: yeah yeah i love the semantic association can you share a time when type gave you a strong feeling like what was that feeling
2: i just came back from a trip to italy and i realized that i re- i was born in milan and i was definitely dipped my body, my, my life, everything was really deep in design. I was living in a street that had at least four or five design stores, product design stores. And really, uh, I think uh, it was really, you know, from primary school, walking to school with my backpack, I was exposed to all these beautiful things. And I, for sure, I absorbed it without even knowing about it. And looking at the logotypes of companies like Artemid or Floss, you know, designed by Vignelli or other people like that, it became kind of like part of my, my life. So I was definitely uh, fascinated by the shape of letters. And the thing that really made me fell in love with type was when I purchased my first Mac and someone gave me a diskette. That I borrowed. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing air quotes right now. I borrowed and uh, I opened this software that was, of course, written in English, which was a language that I didn't understand, nor I spoke at the time. I still don't speak it. So I realized the software was called Fontographer and that you can design your own typefaces with that software. It was amazing. It was like, oh, my God, I can do it. I started designing my typefaces and they suck badly <laughs> because I never studied graphic design and uh, it was very difficult to find books on type design. Mm-hmm. In There were no real uh, manuals on how to design typefaces. If you wanted to become a type designer, you had to work in some type shop where some old guy would teach you the trade and it was never. It never existed a school for typography up until probably the early 90s in in Holland or in, or in England, Reading or the KBK, which are really amazing uh, universities where you can learn to become a type designer. And it's ridiculous if you think about it, because we had this discipline that exists since mid-1400s. So it's like... yeah. 500 years ago. What took us so long? (laughs) Yeah, and because I think we needed to have computers. Mm. And, uh, you know, people started designing fonts like me and making them and trying to figure out how to do it. And then thanks to the internet, you know, a big community of type designers was created and people started sharing information. And that's, I think, the beauty of the type community, it's an amazing community that shares information freely because it's a passion for everyone who, who starts doing it. There's one of my employees who started doing Type at Cooper, which is one of these uh, courses in typography at Cooper Union. And I told them, you know, if you need to, if you are going to do this, forget about your girlfriends or your cat <laughs> or stuff like that. and. Uh, he was joking he would say yes yes i know and then after a year and a half he was like i'm so glad that i finished so that my girlfriend now can finally see me because it takes so much time to design typefaces yeah it's ridiculous
0: mateo great insight to the history of everything one of the items that you you mentioned that interests me is how like the the crossbar of an a or an e if it's a little bit lower, it might evoke art deco types of um, styling or emotions and just kind of expanding on how type is supposed to connect with you know, certain emotions in the correct way. Can you talk a little bit maybe about being on trend or trendy or timeless in some of your, your type design? Because it's funny, one thing that we talk about a lot here in the studio is certain trends that are, are big right now. So it's kind of funny. One of the ones is like a really high contrast serif font that, to me, always like looked like reserved for death metal bands. Are kind of being used elsewhere, or you have like the Chobani type now being used across everything. I guess how do you kind of
2: balance some of those things with a client as well? I think my approach is different depending on, on what you're doing. One of the first business that we were uh, really involved with at the beginning of MOCA, besides uh, branding for restaurants. We uh, designed book jackets, and that was an extremely big school on using type, not designing type, because every book has a different story, and uh, the typography really helps you to inspire the the location, the field, the, the energy, the story of the book, besides the title. So again, if you wanna do something that is like the Great Gatsby, yes, you can use a typeface that looks like, you know, with this low crossbar of the A. Maybe we should explain what a crossbar is. Is the horizontal line in the middle of the uppercase A, or the um, horizontal line in the middle the uppercase A. So when it's low, of course, it's part of the trend that was in the thirties. So if you're doing the great Gatsby, most likely we can use that typeface. Or if you want to do a cover that maybe it looks very smart, we decide not to use that type of typography because it's a new version of the great Gatsby. So using a different typeface, it would give a completely different meaning to the cover. So this is for, I don't know, a book jacket. So every book, so we designed thousands of book jackets at the beginning of MUCA. And so we became very, very proficient with uh, different style of typefaces and choosing the right typeface for the right style of, of book jacket. In the branding side, which is another of the things that we do is uh, really trying to figure out which one is the typeface that would fit with the positioning of your of your brand so for instance the chobani typeface designed by a commercial type it's a typeface that's kind of like reminiscent of a little bit the 70s kind of like the ITC typefaces and uh, the story behind it was uh, the typeface needed to feel kind of like part of uh, fairy tales typefaces that you find in old books. That was the brief that uh, uh, that was given to to commercial type, more or less. And uh, for sure, you didn't imagine that, but. It doesn't really matter it matters that uh, what the client believed in and they bought this idea they stuck to this idea and they repeated over and over the message using that typeface at a certain point typefaces who can have a certain kind of meaning can change also their meaning the inherent meaning when the brand uses them in a different way so You can use a death metal font for a refrigerator, and if the refrigerator is a refrigerator that sells a lot and you see ads of this refrigerator over and over and over and over, someone who's young and never heard about death metal, the moment that they see the death metal LPs, do people still know what those things are? Record cover, let's call them record cover, they will say, That looks like a refrigerator font. (laughs) So the use of the font, I think it's a very, very important thing. How much a brand is able to stick with that typeface. It's like when a brand has a really good messaging and sticks to it without changing it every time there's a new CEO or where there's a new uh, marketing manager is... The typography, it's really one of the anchors of the brand besides the logo. And you see more, more, probably more the type than the logo, because when you write messages, there's definitely more type than logos. The logo is always there, but it's part of the ecosystem. i would be curious for both of you. How do
1: you both see type changing, you know, from a print, digital, all these different platforms, what's changing in type?
2: i think there was a big moment where on the internet you were not able to use any typeface I Maybe mean, you were able to use only six typefaces only system typefaces and then now you can have any font you want and this is beautiful the proliferation of type is uh, incredible it's like you know rabbits there are so many schools The tools at hand for anyone to design a typeface are really easy to use. I actually give a class, a seminar three or four times a year called Type Design for Non-Type Designers. And you have graphic designers who are just coming to these seminars and they learn about it, and in two or three days, they can start building a typeface. It probably sucks. But at least they understand how it works, you know? And uh, I actually had some experience that some student to whom I taught many, many years ago in a weekend class now is doing amazing typefaces. Definitely not thanks to me, but maybe (laughs) just because, not because I made her an amazing type designer, but just because maybe I just gave her the option to show her the possibility that it's not so difficult. So there's a lot, all these schools, there's so many schools with amazing teachers. The, the quality of teaching is incredible. And uh, students are proliferating really like rabbits. And some are going back to be graphic designers or UX designers or whatever they do. And some are designing typefaces and they stick to it or maybe they just integrate it in their uh design practice so there's a i i noticed that there's tons of designers slash type designers while the discipline before was very separate
0: yeah i i'd like to jump in there mateo on that note and definitely echo that sentiment um because i was thinking what back to what you said earlier about it just needed the computer for it to um for type to become much more relevant after 500 years or the practice of, of good type design, because and, and I think back to one project where we made our first custom font for a restaurant as part of the brand, we were able to do that pretty easily, you know, with with the tools at hand. And obviously, um, whether it was good or not is definitely we'll, we'll let everybody else decide. But that access for better or worse, I think across in a design firm like you just mentioned can be really great broadly overall, like you mentioned, is to see all the different typefaces because you, like you mentioned, a lot of it's not going to be that great, but you never know where ideas are coming from and what's going to come from that, that just really massive creative pool. I'm
1: curious, tell you you mentioned you teach this class. How does someone start designing a font or a typeface? Like what, you mentioned some early software, but what are people using now and what's the process
2: look like? There's a few factions let's say, software factions, but more or less, they follow the same principles. The software that I used to use, the one that I borrowed called Fontographer, there was another company called FontLab who had a really good software and it became the standard until another company, which is actually one guy, started this other software called Glyphs. And there's another one called uh, RoboFont. They are all very easy to use. And once you start using them, you know, it's just drawing letters and the software helps you to generate a font after you draw a few of those letters. And they use tools that are very similar to softwares, software like Illustrator or InDesign, you know, more or less how to draw curves in that software. So it's going to be easy to use it in Glyphs. And uh, it's really incredible. I just finished a a course, Branding and Type for SVA. And in a month, some of the students finished a typeface. It's really amazing what they did. Usually a typeface, it takes months and months and months of work to finish, or it never gets finished.
1: Well, there's so many different elements to design, which is, it's kind of blowing my mind as you're talking of just like the number of characters design
2: and like keep consistent. I think the basic ASCII character set, it's very simple. It's like 256 (laughs) characters, (laughs) but uh, you have also to consider that then you have to space those characters Mm. and so that each letter needs to look good next to the other letter because it's not just designing the letters is designing the space in between the letters, which is the most difficult thing for someone who has never designed a font. It's understanding the relationship between those characters. And uh, there's typefaces that have a lot of languages or a lot of alternate characters. And then you can go with a typeface that can have, I don't know, 600, 1,000 characters. And then, actually, they're not called characters, they're called glyphs. I always mix them up. I'm not supposed to. I'm sorry, type <laughs> gods. Please be nice to me. And then this is 1,000 or 1,500 glyphs are only for the Roman font. Then you have to do the light version, the bold version, which is not just making the font thicker. There's a lot of manual adjustment and then there's the italic, which actually, usually, it's a completely different design. It's not just slanted. It's also weird because, I mean, it takes the same amount of time to design an italic as a Roman. And then the italic usually gets used just for 10% of a text. As a type designer, like, why am I spending so much time in the italic? And as a customer, actually, of font, why do I need to spend this? Same amount of money for an italic if I use it only 10% as an upright font. It doesn't make sense. (laughs) You mentioned Glyphs, uh, the one
0: software there. And I know that one thing that we were all interested here in the studio, Matteo, was can you speak to designing the wordmark and
2: typeface for a typeface design software? Yes. Um, the, the end of the story is that me and uh, my friend and amazing designer Andrea Trabucco Campos, we designed the branding, the rebranding of uh, Glyphs uh, for their launch of the 3.0 version. We redesigned their website and by consequence redesigning the icon. And uh, yeah, we made something that is super modernist. It's just uh, there is a half a circle, a circle, and a quarter of a circle to create the, the mark, if I recall well. So we decided to do something that was very simple because it actually it expresses the core of the brand, the purpose of this brand, which is to create a type design software that is super simple. And uh, for me, it was great. It was a great experience because I actually was able to finish my first font thanks to this software many many like 7 8 years ago i was i was going to say a bad word i was running around but I, it ends with running but it would have started with f u c k the the internet for type stuff and there was this guy this chairman guy who just had a beta of a new type design software for people to try and I opened this zip file and suddenly I found in front of me a software that was like the software that I wanted to use because I'm not a type designer, I'm a graphic designer, the design type until then. And it was such an easy to use interface that I started playing with it for hours and hours and hours. And I became immediately familiar with the software without reading any manual. And the best part of it, was that this guy on his website said, Hey, if you, anybody wants to help with this project, feel free to write me an email. And I wrote him an email saying, Hey, I'm sorry. I'm not a programmer, but I love your software. It's fantastic. It made my life so much better. And he said, no, no, don't worry. I don't need anyone who knows how to code. They just need people to give me bug reports. And, and so I started in inundating him with bug reports and then asking for things and because it was starting it was the beginning of the enterprise every two or three days it would launch a new version of the beta so every time you open the software it says hey there's a new version Do you want to load it and i would load the software and i would see some of my suggestions in the software which was the coolest thing ever so I learned a lot about the software, about software making, software building. So we became, I became very good friend with this developer, and we actually designed their first uh, uh, website. And then we didn't do the second one because, of course, we are friends. Money wasn't was a little <laughs> bit, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, and then we ended up doing the third one, which was really amazing.
1: All right, last question for you both: What's your favorite? combination of the need for type and the typeface that either you or someone else
0: met that need with. I personally like when type can be used very abstractly as forms, abstract forms and graphics. And obviously type has a role with the conveyance of information and hierarchy of messaging and stuff like that. But when you can also pull it into really like when a brand leans on just type as one of its primary elements across collateral and everything. I just, as again, Matteo, to kind of echo some of the things you were talking about growing up exposed to type in a certain way, that just seems so cool to me when they can do that.
2: Yeah. I always have an example that nowadays looks very dated, but in the 90s, Apple, at the time, Apple computer, used a typeface that was called ITC Garamond, which was like, Aberration of Garment, designed by ITC, which was a super cool uh, type foundry from the 80s and uh, 90s. And uh, they had this version of this font that was kind of like condensed or stretched, which was a cool thing at the time. Actually, I did a brochure for Apple in Italy when I was a kid. And the coolest thing was like they gave me their uh, manual their the brain manual and you were allowed to stretch type up to 70 percent which now is like Whoa. it's like forbidden <laughs> <laughs> but it was so cool so of course i stretched <laughs> it to the maximum <laughs> that <I could> do. <laughs> but the good thing that i think what they did was amazing because All their communication was with this very distinctive typeface. And uh, you could see a line of text made with that font, and you would immediately think about Apple. And also, the beauty of that uh, font was that it was a serif font for a computer company, which at the time would have used a pixelated-like font like everyone else was doing they decided to use a font that was humanist. So again, there's the choices for a typography should be embedded in the nature of the purpose of the company. And they made a perfect pairing by using that font. Yeah, totally agree. Thank you.
1: Thank you both. And yeah, Matteo, thanks so much for being here, sharing your expertise, that was
2: a lot of fun. Thank you, it was a nice meeting both of you. And I'm looking forward to hear my weird voice <laughs> on this podcast. That's going to be great. <laughs> Are you going to ship it with subtitles? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. I'm sorry for the your listeners. So they, they got you.
1: Listeners, to see more of Mateo's work that we've just talked about, visit muca.com. That's spelled m u c c a.com. And now it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. As I love, my weekly dose this week comes from a listener. So thank you, Brent Taylor, who got in touch. He's the head of innovation and financial strategy at Stoked, a design firm in Nashville, Tennessee. Brent suggested something really simple and like him, I agree, the best designs are simple and solve a problem. He introduced me to this, it's called CLAW, all caps, drywall picture hanger made by 3M. I just recently hung a ton of pictures and images cause we just did our latest or our first in-person exhibition since COVID. So really could have used some of these. It's super clever. It's like just a little piece of metal. It's got these like steel fangs that are on the back. And you simply sort of like mark on the wall where you want your picture to be. Oh, and it comes with like a little self-adhesive marker that you actually hang on the back of your picture. And like it marks the wall as you like hold the picture up. So cool. Anyway, once you have your mark, all you have to do is take your two thumbs and push the claw into the wall. And it sort of like digs into the drywall. And that's it. Then it's got another like little hook on the other side. Like it's so simple. And I think about like me hanging pictures was like the level And like, you know, all the different tools, got the drill. Anyway, it comes in three sizes, so it can hold 15, 25 or 45 pounds. And I think the best thing for me is like, I typically will like move stuff around or like screw up. And so, I don't know, it seems real easy, just like pull it out and like put it somewhere else. And it's just like these two little like snake bite holes and just fill those. And so you can move stuff around and make it real easy. So. Check out the 3M Claw Drywall Picture Hanger, and thank you again to Brent Taylor for sharing his weekly dose. Okay, Blake, you're
0: up. I have two quick ones, if I can. Yeah, please. So I'm a cyclist following many, 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 many brands within that industry, and uh, a great source of inspiration in terms of both you know, machine mechanics, technology, as well as fashion and everything. For everybody out there that's a cyclist, they've obviously heard of Rafa, which the founder is actually from an ad agency. Um, so he's pretty much launched a, a brand that is positioned at the the top end of the of the apparel spectrum. Really clean design, really high end sort of marketing. Obviously, has its uh, detractors out there and and you know there's a lot of commentary around it it's very expensive gear but one thing that caught my eye recently was one of their recent email and social campaigns was just off the chart in terms of what they were doing with the graphics and the imagery um, where they completely distorted the people in the pictures to just be like bright sparkly graphic representations of what of the form in which the person was supposed to be in the picture just really eye catching a bit different, a bit edgy, like I think you know if you were to try to pitch a client on something like that, it, you one would think it might be a little hard like well, we need to see the people in the photo sort of thing. That was really great. um I'd uh, recommend everybody go look that up. The other one is I'm a big Liverpool football club fan, and their latest Nike lifestyle gear is uh is pretty hot. It's got some really cool um, patterning kind of urban sort of touch to it along with, you know, this really kind of chic Nike sport layout as well. And um, some really bold coloring and everything. And it's just uh, that also caught my eye recently as like, I'm not really one anymore. Like obviously maybe in middle school, people might think back where you wearing maybe Nike or Adidas or whatever, especially if you play a sport Um, these days that, you know, I don't, really wear those types of brands for my personal clothing but i was like i would probably wear nike again for this um so that that's really like breaking down a big big barrier i think uh, for me personally so no i agree that's really cool it seems very very wearable if you will without being like oh i've got like my nike shirt on it's just like exactly simple and cool There seems to be a lot of that going on too, kind of in that space, um, which is great to see. I mean, just the proliferance of distinct design, uh, desirable design um, is pretty cool to see. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for those. Listeners, if you have a
1: great weekly dose of good design, tweet it, share it. I love sharing your weekly doses. So hit me on Twitter at Sam Aquilano. Blake, thanks so much for being here. Sharing your thoughts, interviewing Matteo with me—it was a lot of fun.
0: This was awesome, Sam. Thanks for having me on.
1: That's our show. Again, I want to thank Blake Goodwin and Matteo Bologna for joining us, and thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on Podcast. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at designmuseumeverywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we have an awesome weekly email newsletter as well that you can sign up for right on our website. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Design Is Everywhere anywhere you listen to podcasts that really helps new people find the show. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amore Yates with research, support, and writing by Tanya Chafla. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here and we'll talk again next week.